Good morning, Four Corners Church. It is uh, very different to after months to be preaching to a camera now to see all of your lovely faces, the faces of God's people. It is really a remarkable thing to look at another human being and to know that you're going to spend eternity with that person, that you will see them in glory. You will see the glory of God shining off of them forever. And that's the case for all of us as we gather here this morning. It's one thing to be in your own private time with the Lord. It's one thing to be with your family at home singing praises and reading the Word. But it is really a, quite another thing to be gathered with the people of God who constitute a local church. Even more so than going to a conference. You go to a conference, you're with you know, some of the conferences I've been to, 5,000 plus people. Uh, it's a wonderful thing to hear 5,000 people singing in Christ alone, for example. But to be with your local church, the people that you live among day in, day out, you worship with. So we just praise God for this. For those of you who are uh, watching by, uh, on your computer, your device at home, we we welcome you to, to participate in this in this way, and we do uh, hope that more and more we can gather together as an entire local church. I've noticed that, uh, and uh, to some extent apologize for the fact that some of our assigned seats have been scrambled this morning. I know that as you come in, uh, some of you have been placed in a strange place, a strange location. Uh, I'm looking around noticing now uh, some of you in very different places uh, but nonetheless, I hope that we will be able to focus this morning on what God has for us. I also want to say to all of the dads, Happy Father's Day. Uh, it is a special day for dads and, and uh, to be able to reflect on our Heavenly Father. As Christians, we, we think about this day differently because we have a Father in Heaven that we pray to. We say, Abba. The most intimate language, the Aramaic expression of daddy. We pray to him as our heavenly father. So today, not only do we have the gratitude to God for our earthly fathers, but also a reflection on what it means to be the children of our heavenly father. If you would go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, verse 24. Our focus today will be verse 24 and then verses 26 to 27. So we have been, I don't know if all of you have been watching, we've been going through, continuing to go through Romans. We've covered quite a bit, actually. Well, quite a bit by, by some, some people's estimation. Maybe others of you don't, don't think that's quite the case. But it seems to me we've covered quite a bit since we were here last, when we were the very opening verses, first couple of verses, really, of, uh, of Romans. We now find ourselves in verse 24. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through to chapter 3, verse 20, Paul gives an expose of human sinfulness. That's what we have. I've said that week in and week out. An expose of human sinfulness and the condemnation of from God that we deserve because of our sinfulness. And we know that this entire section is devoted to the conclusion that all are sinners. That sin is a universal predicament. Not a single person on the planet is out from under this verdict of being a sinner and as a result of that, as a consequence of that, being under the just judgment of God or His wrath, under His condemnation. And here is Paul's point. If we're asking why all of this material on sin, what is Paul doing in chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20? And it is this point. We need the righteousness of God found in the gospel, the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel. We need that precisely because all that we have before God is unrighteousness. We need his righteousness because this is all we've got, unrighteousness. 
different flavors and different expressions of unrighteousness, but unrighteousness nonetheless. At the core, working itself out in the practicalities of our lives, our very hearts, our thoughts, and our deeds, all unrighteous. And so we need something alien, something from without, something that is given to us by God that renders us righteous. And that, as we saw in chapter 1, verse 16, is the righteousness of Christ. Christ's perfect life imputed to our account, whereby God, the just judge, considers us before his holy eyes righteous, guiltless, innocent, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That's the glorious gospel that he will unfold for us as we go through Romans. But it begins, of course, with a very clear description of the unrighteousness that must be covered, pardoned, put away. So let me just quickly review as we get underway this morning. Let me quickly review what we've seen so far in Paul's logic as he's worked from chapter 1, verse 18 and following. God's just anger against sin, his clear revelation of himself through creation, our rejection of that clear revelation, and failure to honor and give thanks to God. That's what's going on on the ground. Our futile, foolish, and darkened hearts. We have to be careful to take in the language. Every word counts. And Paul has described the human predicament as one, because we have rejected God, because he's revealed himself so clearly in creation, and we've snuffed it out, we've suppressed it, we've rejected it, because of that, our hearts are filled with Futility, folly, and darkness. That is the human predicament. And what follows from this rejection is replacement. In the darkness and futility and folly of our hearts, we replace the eternal, glorious creator, God, with idols, with creatures, with lies. So let me sum it up, really, with the last three sermon titles. If uh, that kind of went over your head or maybe you didn't catch it, the last three sermon titles, I hope, adequately sum up what we've seen so far. The judgment revealed, the truth rejected, and God replaced. That's what we've seen from verse 18 all the way up to verse 24, which is where we pick up today, and then 26 to 27. So what's next? A progression, that's what we have. What's next? What's next in this sequence of sin, this logical progression of human depravity? What's next? That is the question that Paul will now take up in the latter part of chapter 1 as he moves from verse 24 on to the rest of the chapter. In other words, the consequences of human rejection and replacement— Humans have rejected God, the knowledge of God. We've rejected it. We've replaced him. What's next? The consequences for that. That's where Paul is going. So the title for the sermon this morning is Idolatry Repaid. And this is part one because really idolatry repaid takes us all the way to the end of the chapter. So we're going to see this from various angles But today we'll look at verse 24 and then verses 26 to 27, idolatry repaid, part one. So if you would please stand with me for God, for the reading of God's word. We stand in reverence for the scriptures. We are not people devoted to the traditions of men, to ancient ancient stories. We are people devoted to the God who speaks, who reveals himself, who makes himself known, and he does that through the Holy Scriptures. And so that's why we stand as we come to read 
God's Word. So I'm going to start reading in verse 18, and I'm going to go up through verse 27. But keep in mind, it will be verse 24 and then 26 to 27 that we'll focus on. This is the Word of God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's ask for God's blessing on this portion of His Word. Our sovereign King, our mighty God, our loving Father, our merciful Savior. Lord, we bow before you today again. You alone are the Lord. You made heaven and earth and the seas and all that is on them and in them. All the host of heaven praise you. We have many gods, but they are nothing. They are lies. You alone are God. We declare with feeble lips and tainted hearts, we declare nonetheless your majesty. The whole earth is filled with your majesty. We praise you this day, God, as a local church, as we come together, how sweet it is to be together, it's weird being spaced out and covered in hand sanitizer. We have nothing going on for the children in the back. It's just a different scene, Lord, but you are here with your people. God, you are here with us now, and we praise you that we get together, even, even if it's like this. We ask your blessing on our time together, that there would be fellowship that builds us up, And that there would be gospel words that strengthen our hope as we see the day approaching. That there would be praise in our hearts and on our lips today. We ask your blessing on this sermon. We pray that you would help this to be clear. Uh, Lord, that it would not offer any unnecessary stumbling blocks to the hearer. But that it would be clearly understood, and that we would submit to your holy word. Unlike Eve, who followed her own reason, who listened to the enemy, we pray that we would not be autonomous 
in our rationality, but that we would submit mind, will, and affections to the authority of our King. Give us that grace today, Lord. Speak to each of us. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. So as we consider today idolatry repaid, the first place that Paul goes logically is to homosexuality. Homosexuality does not, at least on the surface, seem to follow. What? You read, he's going, he's moving along, and then he goes here. Why here? This is where immediately after describing the forsaking of God, idolatry, the replacement of God with the creature, with images, mere images of the creature, of creeping thing creatures, from that he goes to this topic of homosexuality. He has more to say in the remainder of the chapter, but this is the topic that he introduces really in verse 24 with this word impurity, dishonoring of the bodies, and then he goes on to explain this in more detail in verses 26 and 27. And as we come to this topic in the context of Paul's argument here in Romans, now remember that, we are going through Romans, and we are seeing this topic emerge in Romans. And our desire is to treat this topic as it emerges in Romans. So now it's not the intention to go and the topic be homosexuality. We are simply following the logic of the apostle as he is explaining this here. What I want us to see this morning as we go through these verses are three things. Three things to consider, and you'll find them up here on the screen. The maker who repays, the mirror that reflects, and the mercy that regenerates. As we see this topic emerge in this text, those are the three things that I think we need to see. Let me say this before we get underway. As we approach this topic, I want to point to a verse that I think reflects what's happening today, even among professing Christians. This is a very controversial topic today, and many professing Christians would want to nuance away what the Bible teaches about this topic. Just nuance it away. Or replace it with some quote-unquote other construal of reality. Or soften it to such a point that it becomes entirely unbiblical in its assessment. Softened to the point of just sweeping it away. The text, briefly, that I want to point you to in this regard is 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. This is particularly helpful for those Christians and pastors and teachers and writers who would want to shy away from the topic of homosexuality or, would, or who would want to not treat it very often or at least soften it when they do. It says this, Paul says to Timothy, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. So as regards the topic of homosexuality, what we have today are the accumu or is the accumulating, the gathering up of teachers who will stroke our ears and accommodate to human passions. That's what's happening among Christians who would reinterpret the Bible on this question or shy away from it or soften it. Having itching ears, they accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. 
what we're going to look at today is God's clear teaching on the question of homosexuality. It's very clear here. So clear. So point number one. The first thing I want you to see is the maker who repays. Back in verse 18, Paul started off or started all of this, this discussion that he's having about about sin and condemnation. He started all of this with these words, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And as we discussed, God's wrath or his righteous judgment shows up in various ways. We we asked the question, remember when we came to verse 18, we asked the question, what does it mean that God's wrath is revealed in the present? We've seen it inflicted on people in the past. We know it's coming on the day of the Lord in the future. But what does it mean that the wrath of God is revealed in the present? And we talked about how it shows up in many different ways or several different ways. It abides on us like a death sentence awaiting the final judgment. So the wrath of God, Jesus says, abides in John 3, abides on us. Paul says it is revealed present tense from heaven against the sin of men. But one of the ways... God's wrath is revealed presently in the present tense. And the main way that Paul has in mind in Romans 1 is that God gives us over to sin. God gives human beings over to sin. Look at verse 24. Therefore... That is, because of their idolatry, remember the logic, because of their idolatry, they've been idolatrous, worshipped the creature, worshipped idols, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. God gave them up. Ask the question, what does Paul mean when he says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven and the Answer, the most important answer, number one, is that God gives human beings up to sin, over to sin. And then, look at the first part of verse 26. For this reason, once again, because of idolatry, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. That's the most significant point in this passage. So if you don't get anything else this morning, I want you to get this one point because this is the key to unlocking Paul's logic in this section is that because of idolatry, human beings have been given up to sin as an expression of God's judgment, God's wrath. So specifically, what do we make of this? Paul is essentially saying, this is is striking. Paul is essentially saying that sin is repaid with sin. Catch that. Sin is repaid with sin. The idolatry of human beings is punished with further descent into sin. Now this may not be something that you've ever thought about. Maybe it has. Maybe it is something you've thought about. Maybe it's something that's never crossed your mind. You think, we sin and God inflicts us with eternal punishment. But what Paul is saying here is that sin is repaid with sin. Idolatry results in God pushing us or abandoning us in our sin, handing us over. And particularly here with the sin of homosexuality. The sin of homosexuality is a consequence of human idolatry. Let me say it this way. The presence of homosexuality in the world is itself an outworking of God's just judgment for our God replacement. We have replaced God And the first thing Paul wants to say about the punishment for that is homosexuality. Now, we know 
The reason this strikes us as strange is because we know that sin comes from human beings, not from God. I mean, of course, right? What is sin? Sin is to miss the mark. Miss the mark of who? God. It's to fall short of what? The glory of God. It is lawlessness against what law? The law of God, his very nature, his very character. So it doesn't make any sense to say that God creates sin. Sin is contrary to God on every single level. James chapter 1, verse 13 to 14, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. It is wicked to say I did that because of God. That's wicked. Even Joseph's brothers could not say that. Get this. Even Joseph's brothers, knowing what we know about that story and God's sovereignty and providence over that, even Joseph's brothers could not say, well, that's why we did it. It was God. Doesn't work. Each person, James says, is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The seat of sin is human desire, fleshly fallen lusts of the flesh, passions within us. And that's why Paul says here, notice the language, very important, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts. The ingredients are already there. So we think about God giving them up or giving them over to sin or handing them over to sin. The ingredients for that sin are already in the heart. It's not as though God takes something and puts it into the heart of people. All the soil needed to grow this sin is there. This human responsibility is also described in Ephesians 4, verse 19. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Notice the language. They have given themselves up. We give ourselves up to sin. Remember Pharaoh? Is God responsible on the day of judgment for Pharaoh? Maybe Thutmose III? Is God responsible for Pharaoh and his hardened heart? No. Pharaoh is responsible for his hardened heart, though God hardened it. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around that. And in fact, we can't wrap our minds around it with our limited view of reality, with our finiteness, our lack of wisdom, and our darkened minds. God is sovereign over all, and yet every human sin comes with human responsibility for that sin. Pharaoh will be cast into the lake of fire one day when, as Daniel 12 says, he's raised from the dust of the earth to stand before God. He will be cast there and judged there eternally because, among many other things, He hardened his heart in the face of God's glorious power. Human beings give themselves up to sin, and yet God hands us over. So let me give you a couple of quotes to help explain what Paul is getting at here with this language of giving up in the lusts of their hearts, capturing both human responsibility and divine sovereignty. It's amazing. But I'm going to give you a couple quotes here to help you wrap your mind around it. First is by John Murray. He says, God's displeasure is expressed in his abandonment of the persons concerned to more intensified and aggravated cultivation of the lusts of their own hearts. It's already there. Another commentator, Douglas Moo, describes it this way, like a judge who hands over a prisoner to the punishment his crime has earned, God hands over the sinner to the terrible cycle of ever-increasing sin. But why homosexuality? You're reading this. You're thinking, okay, 
idolatry, sin. Why homosexuality? And in a culture where people say things like this, which, by the way, is not true, homosexuality is like every other sin. Not true. Not true. Remember when Caiaphas stands, or or when Jesus stands before Pilate? I've heard this ever since I was a kid. It's a cliche, one of those we have to be done with. All sin is equal. That's rubbish. If all sin were equal, God would not be just. Because God is going to render just judgment in accordance with the nature of the sin. It's one thing to lust in your heart, which Jesus says is is itself adultery. It's another thing to then go and commit adultery. It's one thing to yell at someone on the highway. It's another thing to ram them off the road and kill them. Jesus says to Pilate, the sins of those who delivered me over is greater. Not all sin is equal. That's a cliche. Be done with that. It is not true and it is not helpful for us in our evangelism and in our apologetics to talk with people as though homosexuality is just another sin among all others. Just can't do that. We're going to see why. Why homosexuality here in Paul's logic? What's the connection with idolatry? Where's the justice in this? And that leads us to our second point this morning, the mirror that reflects. We've seen the maker who repays. Now we see the mirror that reflects. At the end of verse 27, Paul says that homosexuality as a judgment upon human beings for idolatry, listen to the language Paul uses, is due penalty for their error. That homosexuality on the human race, is due penalty for their error. It is, it is fitting. It is appropriate. In other words, the perfect justice of God, in the perfect justice of God, homosexuality is the fitting, just penalty for idolatry among the human race. How so? Answer, it acts as a mirror. It acts as a mirror. It is a mirror that reflects idolatry. Now hear this, this is so important. This is the logic of Paul. And and here's the thing, so often people in the world who are listening to Christians talk about this issue are thinking that it's just homophobia or just bashing against one sin. Just taking one sin in particular and giving it a knockout punch and bashing on that one. There's there's a logic here that we need to understand as Christians so that we can rightly communicate on this issue to those in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our friend groups who are homosexuals or who practice this kind of life. So that we can speak boldly and truly and compassionately to them. does no good for anyone to sugarcoat the truth just a lie. So how? How does it act as a mirror that reflects idolatry? Well, it does this in three ways. In three ways. In the progression, the inversion, and the dishonor. So if you want to write those down, there are three ways that homosexuality mirrors idolatry and is therefore a just penalty due for this error of idolatry. Three ways. So first, in the progression. Remember what Paul said about idolatry. So now we're holding up idolatry, we're holding up homosexuality, and we're we're assessing the two. What I'm saying is that one is a mirror of the other. Concerning idolatry, Paul says that it begins with forsaking. Forsaking praise and gratitude towards God. Forsaking followed by replacing or exchanging a lie for the truth. And finally, it results in the outward act of worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. So, according to Paul's explanation of idolatry, we have forsaking, replacing, and then acting. That's the progression. 
And this is exactly what we find with the impurity, as Paul describes it, of homosexuality. Look at verses 26 to 27. Look very carefully at the language. We're trying to dissect this and come at this from various angles. So look at what he says. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed or burned, it's a very strong word of internal burning, were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men. So remember again, idolatry, forsaking replacing, acting, and here we see women and men, they give up or forsake natural relations with the opposite sex, a good thing. God created it that way. He wanted human beings to have lots of it. Multiply, be fruitful. Within the context of heterosexual marriage, it was supposed to be a very, very common part of life. A beautiful thing, a wonderful thing, a pleasing thing, a gift from the Creator to men and women alike, to human beings. But women and men have given up or forsaken natural relations, and they then replace it with passion for one another, burning passion for one another. And this is followed by the homosexual acts themselves. So you see, forsaking, replacing, acting on what's in the heart. So it is a mirror insofar as it mirrors the progression or the progressive nature of idolatry. That's the first thing to see. The second is that it is a mirror in the inversion that takes place. Now what does inversion mean? To flip upside down. How awful it was to read that images even of creeping things my son loves to catch lizards. But can you imagine an image of a lizard being put in the place of the living God? Mm. Images, even of creeping things, have replaced the glory of the eternal God, a lie for the truth, a creature in place of the creator, idolatry does what? It turns everything upside down. It puts the creature in place of the creator. What's on the bottom goes to the top. What's on the top goes to the bottom and disappears. God disappears. Mm. Turns reality on its head. That's what idol worship does. That's what idolatry does. And that is exactly what homosexuality does. It is an unnatural perversion of reality. It twists and inverts the order of nature. That's Paul's main argument here with regard to homosexuality. That is what's most central to its nature is that it perverts nature, inverts nature. It runs contrary to nature. Verse 26, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Verse 27, and the men likewise gave up natural relations. Not just another sin in the litany of sins. There's something unique here. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, God tells us his will for marriage, for creation, for sexuality. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. There is only one context for sexuality. That's it. Just one. And it is beautiful and good and bond-preserving, child-creating. It's glorious. In that place, man, woman, married, one flesh, forever, or until they die. That is nature. Only what can produce offspring. There is no amount of surrogacy 
or adoption in the world that can mask over the twisted, unnatural nature of homosexuality. It's against nature, and we all know it. We all know it. Forget your political views. Forget your protesting. Forget your Facebook posts. We all know it. We all know it. And just like we know that God is, just like we know of His divine nature and His eternal power, and we suppress it and snuff it out and hold it down, we know this is true too. But we hate it. Because of human autonomy and independence, because of the lusts of our hearts, and the political correctness of our culture, the desire to please men rather than God, we cover it. Third, we see that homosexuality is a mirror of idolatry in terms of dishonor. In terms of dishonor. The progression is important. The inversion is important. But now we see the dishonor on multiple levels. And from various angles, it mirrors idolatry. I hope you see this. So next time you're talking with someone in your life, you can explain this in more detail, more substantive. It's not a list of rules. Oh, look, number nine. Homosexuality. No good. It's not that. That's, that's trivial. That's pitiful. There's a way to explain this that brings out the reality of creation, the glory of God, and points them to the gospel. And if we don't do that, we fail. We fail. We either get set, swept up in the spirit of the age, or we just appear to be hateful bigots. We just don't like people. We're grumpy about People different from us. One or the other, neither of which is helpful, good. Third, dishonor. Remember where idolatry begins. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor or glorify Him as God or give thanks to Him. Notice that this idea of honor is everywhere in these verses. It's everywhere. Verse 24 God gave them up to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 27, men committing shameless acts with men. The language of honor and shame is everywhere in this passage. Very important that we notice this. Paul is explaining. Here's my point. Paul is explaining that the end result of homosexual relations is the dishonoring of the human body. And we all know this. We don't like to think about it, but we all know it's true. The dishonoring of the human body. Dishonorable passions that result in dishonorable, shameful deeds. Because they are disordered, Human beings, that is, because we are disordered, perverse in giving honor, God hands us over to the dishonoring of our bodies with one another. We dishonor God, we become dishonored. We dishonor ourselves when we dishonor God. And how does that show up? In the practice, specifically, of homosexuality. There's a uniqueness here. There is no amount of celebration in our culture that can cover up the shame of it all. I'm amazed. Homosexuality in our culture is not something that is merely acceptable. It is laudatory. It is something to be praised and celebrated. It is diabolical. In fact, the extent to which homosexuality is praised in our world shows that there is satanic work underneath it, behind it. Such glorying 
in this. It's amazing. We have to have a leading character on this particular set of shows. We've got to make a new Pixar film with a homosexual character. We've got to somehow depict that at the end of this movie or that. It, it has to, it's one of those things where Coke or Apple or Google has to come out and wave the flag in order to be acceptable and to sell products. Something to glory and celebrate in as a culture. What wickedness of our world. And we're right here in the middle of it as God's people. Meant to bear witness to the truth of his word. And the glory of his gospel. No amount of celebration can mask over the shame of it all. And deep down inside, every protester, every rainbow flag waver, every company jumping on the bandwagon, knows it is shamefully true. But where, where there is a mirror, there is communication, there is illumination of reality, there is grace. And that leads us to our third, and I hope for all of us, refreshing point this morning. Because as we do as well, Jennifer and I, my wife, those of us, we have loved ones who are caught up in this. And maybe you yourself have this kind of attraction in your own heart. You're tempted in these ways. I want us to really see this last point and let it fall over everything that's been said. The mercy that regenerates. The Bible is clear in condemning homosexuality. You can stack up all the phony New Testament scholars and Bible scholars and theologians. You can stack them up and they can say what they will, but the Bible is clear. It's not a question. I mean, this passage is so abundantly clear. That homosexuality is condemned throughout Scripture. Leviticus 20, 13. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. 1 Timothy 1, 10. Paul is mentioning to Timothy uh, different sins. He says the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 10, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. I was reading one commentary this week, and he said, he was, he was uh, an evangelical commentator who was uh, quoting, uh, commenting on this passage, and he, he mentioned another fellow New Testament scholar who's written a commentary on Romans, kind of liberally minded theologian and scholar who, who basically had to say, because there are a number of scholars who've written books on this passage trying to explain away, you know, nature and so forth and say, well, it's what's natural to them and not what's natural in the order, you know, these ridiculous arguments. And he, he comments on another commentator who reflected on these works and said, look, this is an unbelieving liberal-minded commentator he says, look, it's clear that Paul condemns homosexuality here, but I just don't agree with him. That's the issue, right? That's the, that's the issue. This is what is said, and here's the thing. We either choose in humility and submission to the living God, King, to submit to his authority and his word, or we put our authority on top, speaking of inversion. We become the arbiter of truth. We become the arbiter of what is true and what is false, what is error and what is right. It's a matter of authority. The scriptures are either our authority or not. And when they're not, all unrestraint ensues. Homosexuality was common in the Greek and Roman world. Plato himself, whom Augustine, the early church father, said was the closest to the Christian. Of all the ancient pagan writers, Plato, by many, many, many of the church fathers, is held up. If any of the pagans kind of began to see ah, some of reality, 
some of the revealed wisdom in nature among them, if any of them could be said to have grasped some of it, it was Plato. Plato himself spoke positively of it and informs too ghastly to even mention here. And some commentators have pointed out that 14 of the first 15 Roman emperors practiced some form of homosexuality. Go and read. Read Suetonius. Read some of the other ancient historians of the emperors. Read about some of these things. It was a common feature in the world of Paul's readers, and it is a common feature of our world. Listen, it's not as though we're just, man, things have gotten awful bad today. You know, I've heard that since I was a kid. You know, the world today, the world today, just so bad. If only we could go, go back to when? Well, what do you want to go back to? How about first century Rome or the place from which Paul's writing this, first century Corinth with all the temple prostitutes there? Maybe we want to go back there to the purity of the world at the time when Christ was crucified, Paul was beheaded, and Peter was turned upside down, nailed to a cross. That's that's a good time. The world's always been wicked. And it will continue to be wicked until Christ reigns upon it. 14 out of 15. This was rampant in Paul's day, much as it is in our day. Even more! Before we grow discouraged, before we feel as though we're unique in our time, this was rampant, and it has been, maybe though hidden, all throughout history because it is the wrath of God revealed because of idolatry. And there's always been idolatry. And so this mirror has always been. The Bible is clear. It is the sinful, unnatural, perverse, dishonoring, abominable fruit of idolatry among human beings. That's the truth of it. But there's good news. There's great news. Great news. There is mercy for one who burns with homosexual passion and commits homosexual acts, there is mercy from the living God. This same God who has been put under creation and snuffed out and suppressed and who's been cast aside in his unconditional love for his prized creation, man, humanity, there is mercy from this God. This God of love, yes, A God who will inflict wrath on human beings, something so horrific and violent, we've never seen anything like it, is love. He is love. There is mercy through Christ Jesus. And only through Christ Jesus, there is no mercy in God's judgment for those outside of Christ. 1 Corinthians 6.11 I read to you a passage earlier as we closed this morning. I read to you a passage earlier from 1 Corinthians 6, which is one of those key passages on this issue in the Bible, in the New Testament in particular, in Paul in particular. And it's interesting what Paul goes on to say. He lists all these sins, homosexuality being one of them, and then listen to what he says. I love this. It's beautiful. In verse 11, he says, And such were some of you. Man. That's amazing. Praise God for those words. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Some of you were homosexuals, but God saved you. He changed your heart. And we know that that does not mean that all of those unsaved desires go away. And maybe that's you this morning. You wrestle, you struggle with those desires of the flesh, those temptations to sow to the flesh rather than the Spirit. And you wage war, you flee from those worldly lusts that wage war against the soul. 
Nonetheless, if you are a Christian, you've been changed. You've been reborn. You've been remade. And the power of the living God, of the Son of God in power, reigning at the right hand of the Father, is at work in you who believe to root out and replace those desires of the unsaved, fallen, fleshy man or woman. The language of being washed is associated with the new birth. In Titus chapter 3, verses 5 to 7, we were there years ago. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. God saves people. He saves sinners of all kinds. A new heart, a new hope, that is what the gospel holds out for all people. For idolaters, for all those caught up in the impurity of homosexuality, for the person among us this morning who may not be practicing homosexuality but calls what is evil good, supports the cause, waves the flag, perverts the truth. There is forgiveness for sinners through Christ our Lord. Yes, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. But praise God that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Put your trust in Christ. Call out to him for mercy. Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Call on the name of the Lord, and you will be saved. No one who comes to me, I will turn aside. These are the words of a kind Savior. These are the words of a sin bearer. Be forgiven. Be reconciled to God. Turn your back on your autonomy and your lawlessness and your darkened mind and take hold of this Christ who is your only hope in life and death, who is the ark that alone will survive the flood of God's just wrath. Be forgiven of all your sins by the Savior who took all idolatry And all homosexuality and every other form of sin upon himself at the cross. God punished Christ as an idolater, a homosexual, a reviler, an envious, malicious man. Though he was none of those things. Because God put our sin on Christ. And put him to death for us. That our sins might be removed. Condemnation might be removed. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the sum of it all. Regardless of your sin, this Savior washes it away. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for the truth of your word. We ask that you would give us boldness and wisdom and winsomeness to communicate in this world among those who do not know you, remembering that we once also were alienated from you, children of wrath like the rest. Father, give us humility and compassion, but not in such a way that we sugarcoat or do away with or apologize for this truth of your word that so 
clearly tells us what homosexuality is at the core. God, you are merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Would this be known and realized in our experiences, we pray. Thank you, God, that you demonstrated your love for us. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In Jesus' name, amen.